This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie Deschal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. Today I want to bring a message to you that I believe speaks to the situation that we're in right now in Zimbabwe. And uh, I don't think you're going to see the conditions in Zimbabwe get better in the near future, in the natural. But I do believe that God is working in our lives to do something very dynamic spiritually and in your hearts. And if we can grasp what God wants to do, God always causes us to be victorious through Christ Jesus. You know, we can never... We can never plan what's going to happen to us. We never can determine ahead of time what might come into our lives, good or bad. uh, We hope for the best, but we can't always determine what's going to happen in our lives. Because you can't determine what is going to happen, there's only one thing you can do, and that's to determine your response to whatever happens. And I've learned that the people that think about their response, the people that are intentional about their responses, that are intentional about their walk with God, really succeed and are not knocked when trouble comes. A verse that comes to mind is the Bible says when... uh, (laughs) It slipped my mind. uh, It says... Do not, time, do not fear when times of fear arise. When a fearful time arrives or arises in your life, it says don't be fearful. So how can you not be fearful when fear arises? It's because you're grounded in something. You're grounded in what God says and can do. And you're convinced that God is able to do what he says he'll do. And so what I'd like to talk to you about today is the title of my message is Being Intentional in a season of crisis. Here's a fact. When a truth is laid on a foundation that is a lie, the truth becomes a lie. Today we're faced with all kinds of truths, often in the press, often out of the mouths of people. And these truths are lies because the foundation is a lie. And so what's happening is, no matter how truthful sounding something is, when the foundation is rotten, when the foundation has been removed, those truths don't carry the weight anymore. And so you and I have to understand that that is what creates crisis. And so we have to then decide what we want to do. And one of the things that I've learned in my life is to be intentional, to do things with intentionality. And the definition of intentionality is that which is done with intention, that which is done with purpose, and that which is intended. You see, until our nation, until you as a believer, until we as a church, until our families, our businesses, deal with life intentionally, we cannot solve the problems that we're facing and the crisis that we're in. 
The pattern and principle of scripture, the Bible says when the days are evil, and let me tell you, we live in evil days right now in Zimbabwe. These are evil days. These aren't just bad days. These are evil days. Since when the days are evil, what God does, he looks for a man or a woman. When Pharaoh oppressed the people of God, God raised a man. God raised Moses. When foreign gods and kings overtook and oppressed the people of God, God raised up judges. He'd raise up prophets. He would raise up spokespeople, kings, leaders, righteous people. He, rose up, he raised up Jesus. Jesus came in the time in the, when the world was very, very wicked. It was a very evil time when Jesus came into the world. You have to understand, Roman law, Pax Romana, was everything but Pax, everything but peace. Pax Romana was an evil time. It was heavy taxation, crucifixion, oppression by occupation, occupation armies, ruthless crushing of rebellions, or anyone who questioned the will of Roman law or that Caesar was a god. It was also a time when the Pharisees and the Sadducees had become very oppressive. Religion was oppressive. They ran the temple and they ran synagogues with fear, with heavy-handedness. Jesus even described it this way. He says, you lay burdens on the people that you will not even lift with your little finger. He came against the religious society of the day. It's in times like these that God raises up powerful leader. But it also, it's in times when men are not oppressed. Now, when there is no oppression, when things are going well, when there's righteousness working in the people, how many of you know that God singles out men who are leavened to the body of Christ or leavened to the world, and he begins to deal with the nation because of the sin of a few? For example, Achan, the children of Israel were just about to go and possess Jericho. In fact, they had had a great victory in Jericho. And so they were thrilled at what God had done. The walls of that city, fortified city, had fallen down at the blast of a trumpet. They ran in and they had all the spoils to be given to God. God said, this city's mine. He says, it's the first fruit. He says, if you give me the first, the rest will be yours. So they sent only a few men, 3,000 men to Ai, a small town. And they were routed by the people of Ai. Joshua couldn't believe it. The children of Israel couldn't believe it. How did we lose? We conquer a great city and we get routed in a small town. Of course, we know the story that because of the sin of a few, because of the sin of one, I, a man named Achan, God came after Achan. God said, no, one man has defiled the whole nation. Do you remember when David counted the number of people in the, that were under his rule, counted his military? He was trusting in himself. God judged not only David, he judged the whole nation. Hezekiah. Hezekiah showed his riches to the Babylonians. God dealt harshly with Hezekiah. Today is the time that we're experiencing both of these dealings at the same time. God is cleaning his house and he's challenging the nation. 
You see, God wants a holy people. He wants a royal priesthood. He wants a holy nation. We're at a time when God is needing to raise up some Daniels and Josephs and some Esthers, some Deborahs. As Zimbabwe spirals out of control, we're going to even see greater confusion as our politicians have run out of ideas. And they've lost the trust of the people. No one trusts our politicians anymore. They don't say what they mean. They don't mean what they say. And they only can deal heavy-handedly with the people. This recent bout with our doctors is not the solution. You don't punish people because they can't afford to eat. You don't punish people because they can't afford to get to work. You don't fire 211 doctors. That's unrighteous. That's not right. We can negotiate. We can talk. I'll tell you, there are other solutions, but that's not one of them. Since the national leaders remain arrogant and they refuse to repent or admit that they have failed, since they refuse to call upon the name of the Lord, what they'll do is they'll continue in darkness and they'll, do, they'll continue in their corruption until the time of their removal. And I'm not advocating a coup and I'm not advocating a uh, anarchy. What I am saying is that evil cannot prevail. There comes a time when evil has enough and even the earth spews out the evil from amongst them. The only path that they can take right now is to force people to do things that they themselves can't and wouldn't do themselves. The attitude is submit or be persecuted or be killed. And we know that they're willing to kill their own people. This is not right. This is evil. That is evil. You never turn your army on your own people. And that's not right. Thank you for all your amens. So, in the midst of this kind of chaos, in the midst of all chaos, how many of you know that God always has a plan? And that plan is always a man or a woman. For those who seek the Lord, and I hope I'm speaking to those today who are doing so, there are many whom God will use, and I believe he'll do it with extraordinary wisdom and with great humility. And you'll be able to gain the trust some of you will gain the trust of the leaders of our nation, some of the leaders. I don't think some of them want to be trusted or can trust. But some of you will gain the leaders of the trust of our nation, the, the trust of the leaders of our nation. And you're going to be shown ways by God to let God's grace break into sectors where there have been covenants of darkness that have prevailed. See, God is looking for a people or a person who in their governmental position of authority, and I'm not just talking about uh, inside of just the government, but whether it be governments or businesses or clubs or foundations or schools, or, and even here in the church, that these men and women will be able to assign purpose to their positions of favor and influence. See, I believe there will be many whose greatness and privilege will not threaten the purpose for which they were designed. As God grants you wealth, as God grants you position, as he grants you power, never forget that it is he who gives you the power to obtain that wealth. Amen. When you understand that, and you understand that it's God that raises one up and God lowers another, you have a great confidence, and you can work with intentionality. The story that comes to mind is found in 2 Kings, the 20th chapter, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses. 
verses 12 and 13. It says, at that time, Marduk Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine olive oil, the armory, everything that was found amongst his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all of his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, let me tell you something. This is a picture of an unrighteous nation plundering the house of God because of the failure of King Hezekiah, who was favored with divine providence and had been given notable honor and had been preserved from economic failure, had been enriched on various trading platforms through various systems, and he was a very prosperous and wealthy man. And at that time, Israel was a very prosperous and wealthy nation. It was also a time when God had himself rendered the heavens and instructed the sun to go back 10 degrees, and he healed this Hezekiah. And the renown of this man, Hezekiah, went abroad and everybody heard about this great king and about his conquest. His accumulation of wealth, power, favor, and revenue was undoubtedly an opportunity for him to declare the greatness of God and to be a witness to the kingdom of God. But when visited by the Babylonian embassy with gifts from the king, Hezekiah, instead of boasting about Jehovah, instead showed them all that was in his storehouses. He should have sent them back to their country with a report of who his God was. But instead, he flaunted his wealth. He flaunted his position. And he opened his storehouse and his treasury to the princes of Babylon. These men were idolaters. They probably only had one desire, and that was to strengthen their kingdom against the Assyrians. They probably came and were looking for an alliance with Judea against, and with Egypt. They were, they were trying to find allies to fight against a common enemy. Hezekiah could have declared that God was the deliverer of nations. He could have declared that God was the ruler of heaven and earth, that God was the healer and provider the one who regulates and had reordered the heavenly bodies and had arrested him from the clutches of death, supernaturally prolonging his life. But instead, his heart was lifted up with pride. Pride and egotism took possession of Hezekiah's heart. He credits himself for his increase. He was diseased with self-centeredness, complacency and assimilation. I think of another story in the Bible so that I don't neglect our dear women folk. Esther. Esther was strategically placed in the courts of the king. She was positioned there by God's design. She had laid aside her favor for her purpose. See, she was favored. She was the queen. But God had placed her there for another purpose. Esther, with the help of Mordecai, who, by the way, is a picture of the Holy Spirit, 
and of course the Holy Spirit who actually was involved here, helped her to conquer two death threats. Two death threats. The first one was death by the king if she approached him uninvited, which she did. If he had not raised and put out her sept his scepter, can I tell you something? It was death. Number two, death by Haman, who was in the courts of the king and not only hated Mordecai, but hated all Jews. And he was so full of hatred, he wanted to destroy the whole Jewish nation of which she was part of, although unbeknownst to the king. So she determined with intentionality, think about this, that no excuse would suffice. She risked and chose to lay down her life for the protection of her people and the destiny of the kingdom. Now, we can move like Esther did and turn royal indignation upon the Hamans of this earth, or we can remain silent. Esther was empowered to walk in a governmental order and honor. But let me tell you something. Her preparation endured for over 12 months. Esther 2 verse 12 says, Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. You see, this soaking in myrrh, this process is a process of purification. It's symbolic of her being affected before she could affect her environment. Let me tell you something. You're not effective as a person until you've been affected by God. You're not affected by you're not, we, none of us are going to affect our environment until God has affected us. When we're pure and we're holy and we're willing to stand for the kingdom, we're willing to stand righteously, God will come to your aid and God will come to your rescue. Amen. You see, we need to be willing to be governed by purity before we will be able to invade demonic structures and overcome them. Before we'll be able to overcome the divine ambushes set by enemy forces. There are some present-day Mordecais that will begin to expose the enemy's plans, take their authority at the gate and watch over the king's business. In the inner courts, God will incline the king's ear and his heart to hold out the golden scepter. Some of you will risk and you think, well, what, what if I lose my job? What if I lose my position? What if I lose my title? What if you don't? What if the king holds out his scepter? What if you change the course of the destiny of the nation, your business, the club? I believe that the scepter of the world will come into the hands of the righteous when we lay our lives down in the gates of the city, when we're willing to interface and say no. And I'm, I'm shocked at how powerful we really are when we stand up for righteousness. I'm watching more and more people that when righteous people stand up, it emboldens others to stand up as well. But when the righteous say nothing and do nothing, Everybody hides. It's time to say something. 
Esther is a hero. Her heroic approach opened a whole new dimension. The Jews found favor in the land. They were given great authority. Like Esther, many would occupy noble positions in business, in government. God turned their fortunes, turned things around. And I believe that grace is being imparted to those who are prepared and are preparing themselves for governmental responsibility. Who will enter into holy pursuit of clarity for God's expression of truth with intentionality. You see, where there have been unrighteous plots and malfunctions in high places, God will begin to reveal his glory and make room for eternal foundations of righteousness to begin to be laid. These men and women will be used by God to bring blessing to all men, not just for themselves. Selfless, humble, obedient men and women, obedient to God. And like Esther, I believe it's for such a time as this. Such a time as this. Revelation 11, verse 15, the Bible says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there, was, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. I believe that God is setting up a kingdom that shall, never, that, that shall stand forever and ever. You know, the Lord has absolute ownership of everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, not the world. The world is in control, but the earth, it's the Lord's. And he is the creator. He is the governor of the earth. Babylon and the Babylonian system tries to gain ownership through its trading systems, through its money systems. But we know that that system will ultimately fail. As we see it is today, our money system is failing. And our solution is just to print more bogus money. It's not based on any real value. Our nation, somebody recommended, should turn to a gold standard. Take the gold that we have in our nation, begin to mine it for our nation, not to give it to everybody else, not to sell it for personal gain, but to put it in our own coffers and back our own currency by gold. That's not a bad idea. Babylon and the Babylonian system ultimately will not gain victory over our resources and our people. You see, this is a battle of the ages. There'll be a day when we'll see the Lord reign. We'll see him have complete dominion. He'll have complete rule. And the kingdom of God will be the source of all authority. Now, that day is not today, but that day is coming. I don't know when it'll come, and I don't believe necessarily that it'll be in our lifetime. But I know this, it is worth fighting for, it is worth standing up for, and it is worth calling into existence in our lifetime. It's worth living our lives by kingdom values, preparing for a day when there will be a kingdom that will not pass away, because God desires us to learn the ways of the kingdom. And God will bless you when you do that. How can we make our rule down to earth? You know, I know sometimes we speak of these structures that are like, wow, that, that would take great boldness. Well, you know, sometimes we can go just to the other side of the coin and say, wait, there's some very simple things that you and I as believers 
can do, I think things we must do to intentionally affect the people around us. Right now, Christianity in Zimbabwe is beginning to have a stench to it. There are certain people that are like, I'm so tired of all this Christian gobbledygook. And I believe there are a few reasons that people stay away from Christianity. And it's not because they don't know any Christians. It's often because they do. And they can't relate to us. You see, our actions and our words as followers of Jesus have either the power to repel people or to attract them. Some of you are very attractive. You, you wear Jesus well. Others of you, well, let's just say there's some room for growth. <laughs> so what can we do about it? Well, in addition to modeling humility and grace and truth and love and so many other things that are described in the Word of God and really describe the earliest Christian followers, I think that we can as Christians begin to watch some of the things that we say. Watch our words. I want to urge Christians, believers, to stop saying, I'm feeling blessed. You know, that is such a ridiculous word to the world. We're living in really rough times and you're feeling blessed. I'm, feel, I'm just feeling blessed. You know, when anything good happens, I'm feeling blessed. And in that same vein, there's three other things I think Christians should really stop saying. Number one, I think we should stop saying prayer works. Prayer works. Now, should we really stop saying this? Well, yes and no. Most people who say prayer works these days really mean this. God did what I wanted him to do. Prayer works. God did what I asked him to do. As if prayer was a button to be pushed to release exactly what they wanted from the vending machine. Prayer works. Praise God, I got my new iPhone. Praise God. Prayer is not a button to be pushed. It's a relationship to be pursued. Prayer does work, but it works differently than we'd like it to or how we often think, think it'll work. You know, prayer still works when we can't trace out any direct result of prayer. Prayer still works when the opposite of what we prayed for happens. I'm always shocked when I watch two high school football teams or soccer teams or uh, cricket teams or whatever go out onto the playing field. Rugby, the other day I watched two rugby teams in the World Cup. They're both at their end of the end zone and they're both praying. God let us win. How many of you know one of those people's prayers are not going to get answered? But did God not hear the prayer? God, God still hears your prayers. God knows your prayers. God, has, God knows what you have need of. How many of you know sometimes our prayers aren't the right prayers? But he still wants us to pray. Prayer still works in those moments when we feel very distant from God. Prayer still works when we bang down the door of heaven for years and years and years, and then we're not sure that anything's really happening up there at all. I've heard stories and I've read accounts of people who have prayed and prayed and prayed, and 
We had one account here in our church where I know of a lady who prayed for 40 years for her son to come to know Jesus. She died. Her son didn't know Jesus. He didn't receive Jesus at her funeral. But on his deathbed, her prayer was answered. He received Jesus. I'm sure she would have loved to have that answered prayer while he yet lived and she yet lived. But nonetheless, the prayer was answered. You see, there's scores of people inside and outside of the church whose spirits are crushed because they prayed fervently and they didn't get the job. They prayed fervently and they, their loved ones still died of cancer or still died of HIV. Or they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and their child was still born without a heartbeat. They ended up in a car crash that left them permanently traumatized or disabled. And the list goes on. You see, prayer doesn't work because I got what I wanted and they didn't. The multitudes of saints that have gone before across the centuries who would be shocked today to see prayer being reduced to God doing what I asked him to do when I asked him to do it. Hebrews 11 speaks of those that are passing on before us and says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword? Whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies? Women received back their dead and raised to life again. And there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something far better for us. So that only together with us should they be made perfect. God's, God is not a puppy to be trained. He's not our heavenly butler. Or our heavenly chef who prepares food to suit our every whim. He is sovereign, almighty God. A man named Richard Foster, an author and a saint, wrote this. He said, for those explorers in the frontiers of faith, prayer was no little habit tacked on to the periphery of their lives. It was their lives. It was prayer. It, it was the most serious work of their most productive years. Prayer. Nothing draws us closer to the heart of God. Do things happen supernaturally when we pray? Yes, they do. 
but often in ways that we can't understand or, or trace. It's not always easy to trace how God works. I think Christians can take consolation in the fact that when we pray, we often don't know what to pray or even how to pray. Yet the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit will translate the prayer into something better than we could phrase at the moment. Romans 8, 26 and 27 is in the same way. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray as we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So, pour your hearts out to God. Pray about the things that the Scripture says are close to God's heart. We can be confident that God answers prayer according to his word. Pray the word of God. Don't just pray your feelings and your emotions. Pray what God says. Pray his word. When something goes your way, be grateful for it and offer it back to God who gave it to you in the first place. Say, thank you, Father. Give a thankful heart. And if, when things don't go your way, understand that God is still very, very much in control. And he loves you very, very much. Just because God is silent does not mean that he's absent. And delay doesn't mean denial. Let's be prayerful. Amen? Here, here, here's, here's, another, here's another phrase that kind of gets under my skin, especially as a pastor. God told me to. God told me to. You know how ridiculous this is sometimes? You know, often you hear people and pastors say things that start with, God told me to. You know, the longer I follow Jesus, the more hesitant I'm, I am to say God told me to do these things, or especially specific things. Now, it may just be an issue that I'm struggling with and that I need to work on, but it, it, it springs forth from my observation that uh, I've seen this misused far more than I've seen it used well or authentically. In fact, I've often noticed that it's more out, the more outrageous the claim of the person, the more likely someone is to say, God told me to do this. I have families that come to me and God told them to do all kinds of crazy things. So I feel like saying this sometimes. Oh, God told you to do that? Really? Really? God told you to do that? God himself directly spoke to you. He told you to build that building and you had no money. Oh, yeah, really? Okay. He told you to leave that church where you're in deep conflict with another member. God told you to not work it out but to leave. Is that what you're telling me that? Oh, how about that big house that's way above your means that you moved into? God told you to do that, right? And a host of other things. My question is, are you sure it wasn't the pizza you ate the night before? Or the voice in your head that often tells you to do things that you simply feel like doing? See, for the record, I believe that there are times 
when God does speak to people today. But let's be realistic. The number of times that I've heard the phrase used to describe a decision that is selfishly motivated. Now come on, admit it. Come in. You're just justifying your impulses. Or when it's contrary to the scriptures. People come and they say, God told me, but it's contrary to the Bible. I'm going to, let me tell you something. The Bible is pretty clear when it suggests that you're doing something sinful or wrong, or at least that isn't wise. But God told you to do that. Or sometimes we use this phrase when it's designed just to shut down debate. Who, who, how many of you have ever tried to win the God told me debate? I have people, I'm their pastor. They come to me. Well, God told me. To, well, who am I to fight with God? Doesn't seem very scriptural. Doesn't seem very wise. Doesn't seem very good. But I mean, who's going to fight with God told you? But then you look at their lives and you see where their lives take them, where God told them. And I'm saying, I hope you're just as honest to come back and say, I don't think it was God. It might have just been pizza. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't tell us anything directly. But what I am saying is, and what I am suggesting is that it happens far less than we claim. So what's a better course? Well, why don't we say something like this? Based on the knowledge that I have, based on what I know of Scripture, I believe this is the best or the boldest or the wisest course of action that I could have. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He, when, when, when Paul was being buffeted in a storm, he says, I perceive, I perceive. God had showed up with an angel, but he didn't give the, he didn't say an He said, I perceive that something's about to happen. I perceive it's not, he didn't say God told me. He says, I perceive. He took responsibility. Let me tell you something, when you take responsibility, it still gives room for God. And you know what, it, 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 does that make sense to you? Because let me, let me explain something. At least then we can have an intelligent conversation with each other. At least there's room for some dissent. And you don't pull the God card to just justify something about which Christians and others can have a legitimate discussion. Or on the other hand, if you're just trying to shut down debate, then just be honest. Why don't you just say this? I wanted to do it, so I did it. There. Now I've said it, and everybody can just shut up and be satisfied. Fine, fine, but at least you took responsibility. You just did it. That's fine. Against all counsel, against the Bible, against anything, it's what you wanted. But don't say God told you. Just say, I just did it. I wanted it, I did it. I think that makes it a lot more honest. And especially when we're talking to people that are not Christians. Oh, yes, God told, God told me to do this. They scratch their head and they say, really? And then when you fail and you fumble and you fall, they look at you like, I don't want anything to do with that God. And then there's this possibility. How about this idea? It just might be possible if you're dead honest that you might even realize that you made a crazy decision. Anybody ever make a crazy decision? Don't blame God. Amen? Here, here, here's the third one. I'll close with this. I could really feel God's presence. I could really feel his presence. Tap your neighbor. I say, I think he's talking to you right now. 
I know you've heard this before. And, and, and I know this. We live in a very emotional age, and we've arrived at a place where many of us feel like we've become many authorities on when God is present and when God is not present. But I want you to analyze that the truth is that we tend to feel God's presence more when the worship team plays our favorite song. <laughs> And it's even more anointed when they play five of our worship, favorite worship songs in a row. Woo, now that I really felt the presence today. Or as a pastor, we love it when the, the room is packed. Oh, praise God. The anointing is here today. God is here today. Or, or we, we really like it when... The decision in the meeting goes our way. I could feel God's presence. <laughs> or when we felt happy during our quiet time. Whew, I had such a good quiet time. I felt the presence of God today. Is God present only when we feel him? Or better yet, is God's presence synonymous with our ability to detect it? Of course not. Of course not. So why do we insist on speaking like this? Why do we insist on speaking like our ability to detect God determines whether he's there or not? Nowhere did God promise that the Holy Spirit was a feeling or an emotion. Jesus did explain to us that the Spirit is a person and that he moves freely as he wills. The Holy Spirit is bigger than our emotions and he's not subject to our editorial comment about whether he's present or not. I've had moments when I believe I felt the presence of God and I felt it palpably. I could sense God's presence. I could almost taste his presence. I've had those moments. I can tell you many times that I sensed his presence. But God is just as present on the worst days as he is on our best days. God is just as present when we are uncomfortable as when we are comfortable. God is just as present when we are hurting as when we are healed. And sometimes the room was just full. And sometimes the band was just good. Really good. You see, we need to learn to trust in God's presence, especially in those moments when we suspect he's absent. The Bible's full of promises. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He says, those that call upon the Lord, I will hear. He tells us that if we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. Even when you don't feel him. What if we as believers started having more intelligent, less consumer-driven, and consumer-oriented, deeper conversations with people? Don't you think that the world might be a little bit tired of all of our bless me, bless me, God told me, God said, I feel conversations? What if our relationship with Christ was grounded more deeply in God's character and less in the constantly shifting circumstances we see around us? I'm thinking of the dialogue inside and outside the church, that it would be much, healthy for, much healthier for us if we were talking about 
real issues. What do you think? See, we're living in a world that's living on sound bites. But as the wicked, both in our nation and around the world, become more so, and they become more frustrated with being, and they begin to unfold their plans of greed and their plans of power, will they be faced with a people of substance? Will they be faced with a people full of cliches and empty slogans or somebody that can really stand up and give a hope for the reason that they believe in? You see, we need to intentionally begin to measure our words, our lives. We need to allow God to prepare us for some very hectic times where, like Esther, we may even need to risk life and limb for the cause of our brothers and sisters and for the cause of the kingdom of God. Or, God forbid, I guess we could continue on a path that somehow leaves us open to the boasting and pride and opens our treasure houses to be plundered by our enemies like Hezekiah. Can we begin to measure our words? Can we begin to measure our lives? And can we begin to understand the season that we find ourselves in? Because I believe if we can, God himself wants us to learn to, in this season, change things with our intentionality. As we close this morning's service, I, I want you to just to think a moment about your own walk with God. Have you allowed yourself to slip into a shallow, cliche-filled belief system? Or have you begun to deepen your own convictions? Have you had encounters with God himself, with his word? Have you resolved some things in your spirit, in your heart? Regardless of what you feel. Because faith cannot be driven by emotion. Faith cannot be driven by circumstances. Faith lays hold of promises. Lives and dies by promises. And our conversations take on a different tone when we live by faith. Our friendships take on a different tone and our lives may depend on our choices. Or the lives of our sisters and brothers may depend on our choices. I'm always shocked how many believers who have positions of authority buy into a vain philosophy of this world when they could have stood up and said, no, this is wrong. This is not moral. This is not right. It's not good. Now, there, there's a time to hide yourself. I understand that. The prudent man hides himself when he sees trouble coming. But then there's also a time. And more and more as we see this evil age that we live in. That we're going to have to identify one way or the other. You either identify with righteousness. Or 
you line your own pockets for evil. I, for one, I want to identify with righteousness. I'm identifying with all of our doctors, all of them. This isn't a threat against doctors. This is a threat against all of our health. You don't fire doctors because they don't, can't afford to go to work. They can't feed their own families, but they have to take care of all of us. And then there's no real negotiation. It's just the heavy hand of, we know how to run the hospitals better than you do, but we can't even get running water in our main hospital. All of our equipment is broken. There are no drugs. And we're not able to talk about these things and reason together. But no, the heavy hand of the law comes down. Well, okay, I guess that's a solution. But I don't know how smart it is. I don't know how enforceable it'll be. We need to find plans that alleviate the pressure on people today. All of us. Those of you in positions of real authority, those of you that can help your staff and your labor, the people that work with you. I know here in the ministry, we're working like crazy trying to find out ways to get more money into the hands of our people. Inflation is not what they say it is. We know that's true. We live in the real world. They don't. They get paid U.S. dollars. We don't. So inflation's screaming. And as fast as we give hardship allowances, it's eaten up by taxi fares and increased fuel prices and all kinds of ridiculous things. People are spending more money running a generator. Or they have electricity only at night, so they have to do all their work at night for their households so that they can work all day to pay for the electricity that they use at night. It's a vicious cycle. It's, it's not, it's not a, we don't live life anymore. We live to serve the masters, the rulers, who tell us that they're the rulers. The ruling class is telling all of us how to live our lives. That's not right. Some of you need to stand up. Some of us need to begin to let our voices be heard. Some of us need to lead our nation out of this ridiculous mess we're in and have dialogue. I'm not saying anarchy. I'm not saying we overthrow the government. I'm not, I'm not espousing another coup. Although, what do we constantly hear about? All those rumblings are in the marketplace. We don't know how that works. I just know this. It's very, very tenuous for all of us. And most of us just want peace. But peace doesn't come without a price. So let's help each other. Can we be intentional about what we're doing? Intentional with each other. Intentional in our conversations. Intentional in our words. And can we stop with all the Christianese? And can we have real conversations with real people? Can we work out our differences? Can we begin to practice our Christianity in a powerful and real way? I'm calling our church to do that calling all of you to do that. Amen. So let's just lift our hands and let's just ask God to help us. Father, we worship you. We praise you.
Father, we, I want to take a sober look at ourselves and a sober look at our situation. Father, we acknowledge today that you do have the answers. And sometimes we're afraid. We're afraid to speak up the truth. We're afraid to risk. We're afraid to put our lives, our livelihoods on a line for truth. Father, we've been intimidated. We've been dominated. We've been manipulated, emasculated. All forms of witchcraft have been used against us. Fear. But Lord, you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of love of strength and of a sound mind. So Father, today we lay hold of your promises. We lay hold of your word. We ask you, Lord, that you would put inside of us a spirit of wisdom, boldness, conviction, and help us to be intentional about all we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. Hallelujah. Come on, let's all stand up. Stand on your feet. Just grab the hand of the person next to you real quick. Tonight, uh, I'm going to be speaking on the Lord of the Breakthrough. Bishop Vaughn came and I, I, he was uninvited, by the way. I didn't invite him, you know. So I, I, I want that qualification out there. I didn't invite him. But he brought a message, and I felt that the message was an accurate word for our congregation, the breaker. The breaker. And I, and, I, and I felt like tonight, you know, we can talk about what we need for a breakthrough. We, we serve the Lord of breakthrough. And some of you really do need a breakthrough in your life. So I'm going to encourage you to come and receive some encouragement tonight about your breakthrough. Just quickly grab the hand of the person next to you. I want to close in prayer. As we do, I want you to uh, just squeeze the hand of the person next to you. Just squeeze it real tight. I mean, don't break their hand. Just give it a you know, just give a little squeeze, let them know you're there. You know, my wife and I had a little code system when we were first married. I'd hold her hand and I'd squeeze it three times. That meant, I love you. I love you. So that's our little code. We're standing in a meeting like this. I just reach over and grab her hand and go, three little squeezes. She'd look at me, I'd look at her. Message delivered, hey? Just squeeze somebody's hand three times. Say, I love you. Now, the right kind of love, okay? This is brotherly love, sisterly love, okay? Amen. Yeah. And uh, so the, uh, the whole idea of us coming together as a church is about community. Being a community, being a family. You know, it's hard in a world where the whole thrust of life is take care of yourself. Take care of Jack, you know, and leave everybody else. Once you're taken care of, if I have a little left over, I'll take care of somebody else. The whole idea of Christianity is just the opposite. Hey, I'll take care of others as I go. And, 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 and God says when we have that attitude, we begin to learn the law of giving and receiving. And, and, and that, that, that whole idea of giving and receiving, taking people with us as we go, is really, really important. So here's what I want to say to you, and I'm going to close with this. Over the last few weeks, I've been speaking to our leadership here at the church, and we've been praying about some things, and we really felt that this was a season for our church, for you and I, to spend some time in the presence of God, praying, 
worshiping, lifting our eyes up to Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith. And so with this in mind, we're setting aside the weekend of the 6th to the 8th of December. And we're, th- we're going to theme this weekend as rain. We're expecting the, the rain. Rain is often, in the Bible, reflection of God's presence, of God's anointing, God's outpouring. The Bible says we are to look for the times of the former and the latter rain, that they would come at the same time. And yes, that's a natural rain that we know about, but also it's a spiritual rain, and we're looking for the spiritual rain. Job 14 says this. It says, for there is hope for a tree if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender roots or shoots will not cease. Though its roots may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of rain, at the scent of water, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. Boy, I'll tell you what, I know this, that if we seek God, his rain will cause some of you to bud. Some of those things you thought were dead to come to life. God gave us a promise at the end of this year that he would do that. In the word of the year, God promised us victory. And he also promised us that this year we'll see God bring forth our dreams. He'll bring birth to our dreams and our visions. Those things that have been dormant for years, they'll begin to mature and come forth into fruitfulness. I think this is the season, still, I don't think it's over, of new beginnings, stepping out by faith into the unknown. So we're believing that as we come before the Lord, we ask for rain, according to Zechariah 10.1, that he'll give it to us. He says, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. So as we prepare for this time, I want to invite you to join in a season of fasting and prayer. I'm not telling you how to fast or how to pray. Some of you will do a Daniel's fast. Some of you do a Waters fast. Some of you will fast a meal. Some of you may even fast social media. I don't know what you're going to do. But from the 29th of November up until this weekend, the 6th of December, let's fast and pray. Let's seek God. And let's begin to believe God for a new birth and a new thing. Amen? Let's pray. Keep the hand of the person next to you. Father, we pray right now. Father, we know that you answer prayer. We don't say that as a cliche. We know you hear us when we pray. Father, we don't always see it, but Father, we know that you hear us. So Father, as we come before you today with our hearts open, help us to seek you. Help us to find you. Help us to grasp you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.